Now, for our message today, I want you guys to think about the culture you grew up in. And I'm not specific to any religion, I'm not specific to any race or ethnicity, but the culture that you grew up in. You could have even been Caucasian, but even within the Caucasian uh, culture, there's many different cultures on how they live. So what was the culture like in the household that you grew up in? The reason why I ask that, uh, that question is because culture is different if you think about it worldwide. Throughout the world, there's just many different cultures, and I, I don't even know if you can count as many or uh, count how many cultures we have. I don't know the specifics on each and every one of these, but the one I can definitely talk about is the bottom right corner that, uh, that is um, a Filipino dance. Something that I used to do growing up in the church. Yeah, Jim has the movement correct. These are bamboo poles that, that the people at the ends would be in rhythm. They need to get those bamboo poles and in rhythm on the fourth beat, they will snap it together. One, two, three, they, they hit it on the ground and then they, on the fourth beat, they hit it together. Then you have two dancers dancing between the, the bamboo poles. It's usually a man and a woman. Because the dance is supposed to symbolize the ritual of courtship between a man and a woman. And so the man and the woman, the male and female, will, will be in rhythm. They need to be in rhythm because if they're not in rhythm, then your feet get smacked with those bamboo poles. And guess what? It's not a great feeling. I know that feeling because it, I was not coordinated. I was the one guy that when, uh, when it was my time to, to dance, I could see all the other girls like, oh no, Edre has to dance. No, I don't want him to be my partner. This was at our Filipino church. We lifted up God, we praised God, but then on the occasion of our Filipino Independence Day, we did this dance, right? And the girls, they don't want to dance with me because he does not have any rhythm. I would mess them up and then their toe or their ankle would get caught in the bamboo stick and it would, it would bruise. But that's a fond memory of, uh, that I have. You know, it's a fond memory that I, looking back at it now, I, I actually enjoyed that time. I used to hate it because I thought, you know, mom, my mom would force me. She was the director, the choreographer of it. And she said, if my own son does not play, how do you think that's going to look like in church? She said, you, you need not play dance. You need to dance. And of course, I would try to quote the Bible, even though I could never find it in the Bible, that the Bible says you can't dance. <laughs> but she said, that doesn't say that in there. You're going to dance. <laughs> yes, yes, they would. They would, Dad. So, But uh, looking back, it was a fond moment at least in the culture of my upbringing, in the culture of my home, in the culture of my home church. What was your culture like? What are some fun moments? And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because the world 
is full of diversity. We are full of diversity. And this is a continuation from last week's message. That diversity can either make us or break us. Diversity can either make us or break us. Not only as a church, but as a community, as a country, as a world. Diversity can either make us or break us. So take a look at this picture. I intentionally chose some of these pictures because they're very foreign to me. I can, I've become too saturated, I don't want to say saturated, I've just marinated for 43 years in the Western civilization that, that looking at these other cultures, what are they celebrating? The title of this picture up here on the top right corner, it says the, uh, a Mexican dance, but I don't know what they're dancing to, right? The bottom left corner looks like Chinese New Year. The world is so diverse. And so the message that I want to share with y'all today is that we should be a diverse group. Can we go to the next slide? No, it's okay. Can we be a diverse group? Sure. The point I'm going to make is that can we be a diverse group, a multitude of people that can praise God? Can we be a multitude of people that praises God? Well, you know what I found out this past week in reading the Bible? We can. We can. And here's one of the proofs. Our key text today is found in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 through 10. After this... After this, I looked, and there before me was a great, a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they crowd out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Diversity can either make us or break us. But in this Bible verse, we see how diversity has come together to praise God, to worship God. That's what we see in this verse, in this chapter of Revelation. In context, you have to remember what this, what chapter 7 talks about. In Revelation 7, verse 1 through 8, it's about the 144,000 who were sealed by God. That 144,000, that number used to scare me as a kid. I used to think only 144,000 people are going to make it to heaven? What? Even as a kid, I was able to calculate and count. Wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. Because if our country has millions of people in it, and then this world has billions of people in it, 144,000 doesn't sound much. Why? Why is that? Oh, yeah, you're right. It's worse for any of us, right? So, so that's the context. That's the context of this chapter. 
Jim brings it, uh, brings good insight in this, that Revelation 7, 1 through 8 is really symbolic. It's a symbolic number. The ones who are sealed are actually those who are from Israel. If you were to read it, verse 5 through 8 actually tells you that in, in Judah, 12,000 are sealed. In Gad, 12,000 are sealed. And it goes on down the list of the 12 tribes of Judah, right? Or the 12 tribes of Israel. All the way down until it gets to Benjamin. And it says, from ben- Benjamin's tribe, there's 12,000 that, uh, that are sealed. Meaning, what are they sealed by or with? They're sealed with God's, uh, God's presence. They're sealed with God's seal of approval, is what we could say. So now you multiply 12,000 to 12 because there's 12 tribes. What do you get? 144,000. Well, why was the number 12 chosen? Well, because you and I know that 12 is a symbolic holy number. It's a number of completion. It's a number of godliness. So what this is talking about is that the people who are sealed by God are righteous people. The people of Israel in that sense. Then, after that, after the sealing of 144,000, it comes to this verse. I have to believe that the multitudes that are mentioned here is nothing to do with Israel, but that these are the saints who have lived from the time of Abel, from the time of Cain, all the way down to our time today. That's who the multitude are. That's why it's such a great multitude. Remember who saw this vision? It was John. John saw this vision while he was on the island of Patmos. And what he saw here was past, present, and future all coming together. For what purpose? From what verse 10 tells us, to sing in a loud voice that salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's what brought the people together. You might be asking yourselves today, maybe this past week, with all the calamity that's happening in the world, with weird weather patterns, with the politics, with the division that we see, with the, with the fighting and bickering of our world, you might have had said, where's the end? Where is the end of all of this? The end of all of this is this. If Jesus is out of the picture, there's no glue. But if Jesus is there, then I strongly believe that diversity, that multitudes can come together for a common purpose in unity. But God has to be that glue. God has to be the glue for a church. God has to be the glue for a family. God has to be the glue for a community. God has to be the glue for a country. God has to be the glue on that. Now, let's take a look at this this word multitude. How many people? Well, it doesn't tell us a specific number. Thank goodness, by the way, because if it was 144,000, I know for a fact I don't think I was going to make it. But if we were to look at this, it tells us that the multitude is what? Great. That adjective is very important. It's a great multitude. 
And not only is it a great multitude, but it's a multitude that we can't even count. We can't count it. That gives me hope that there's not few people who believe in God, but that there's many who believe in God. That there are people out there who are longing for God. And you and I, remember how I ended last week's sermon? I said that you and I need to be experts for Jesus. Experts on what? Remember, the fruits of the Spirit is what I pointed out. That we should be experts on joy and compassion and kindness and love. And all of the other fruits of the Spirit. So if we can be experts, then we can win, we can win souls. Not that we're winning souls for, for Jesus, but that we present the gospel to them. And then Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, touches their heart so that they too can be part of that multitude. And what else about this multitude? Not only is it very numerous that you can't count it, but it tells us that it's from every nation. That's why I know this is not connected to the 144,000. Some theologians have debated that. They think, no, this is a continuation of the, of the thought about the 144,000. No, the 144,000 was specific to Israel. But this one tells us that this multi- multitude is from every nation. And it breaks it down, not from ev- not just from every nation, but every tribe, the tribes that are within that nation. If USA is a nation, then our tribe is Colorado. That's how we can see it. That's how we can understand it. From every nation, from every tribe, from every people, and from every language. From every language. Brothers and sisters, Do not play the role of judge. You and I do not know who who has the heart for God. I am glad that is God's role. Your role and my role is to love. Is to, to be the experts of grace and mercy. That's our role. If you believe Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, isn't that what Jesus did for us? That is the story of Jesus in a nutshell. That he gave us grace, mercy, and love when you and I didn't deserve it. That's Romans 5. Read Romans 5. That grace abounds. So it tells us that this multitude of people comes from every nation, tribe, and language, from every tongue. What are they doing? Well, this is what they're doing. It tells us that they're standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. Then I love the next part of verse 9. It says, they were wearing white robes. What is so significant of white robes? Well, this is also symbolic of purity. They're no longer tainted by sin because through Jesus Christ, their sins have been washed away, right? In Isaiah 1.18, it says, Let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be washed away. Washed away like it's going to look like, like snow, like white snow. So this is very symbolic of that, that the people who are before Jesus right now, the people who have come together as this massive multitude 
a massive multitude of people that you can't count. They're symbolically in white robes. That tells me that God is truly a wonderful God who keeps his promises. You think about the time, the history that has happened between the fall of Adam and Eve all the way to our time. The stories you've heard, the, the, the wonderful stories, but yet the stories of atrocity. In the Middle Ages, when innocent people were punished and tortured, even by the church. I'm not going to speak specifically to one church. I'm just going to speak in general. It, it was the people of God who punished innocent people in the Dark Ages. Think of just the history of the world. All the suffering throughout it. The pain and the anguish all culminating in this passage. Hence the reason why they come in white robes holding palm branches in their hands. Holding palm branches, that's symbolic of victory. Well, what are they... What are they celebrating? Victory over sin because of Jesus Christ. And they're singing the song. They cried out in a loud voice. That's what it means. They're actually singing, but, but their cry is almost symbolic as well because all this pain that we've seen as a world through countless years culminates to this point to where the people sing, salvation belongs to our what does that mean? Salvation belongs to our God. God is the only one that can save you and me. God is the only one that can save us in the mess that we find our world in. It's nothing else. It's not one party or that party. It's not this one idea or that idea. It's the same idea that's been around for 6,000 years that we find in Scripture that God, Elohim, Yahweh, He is truly the way, the truth, and the life. That's what it means that salvation belongs to our God and He's the judge. Our lesson study this past quarter has been on Revelation. And one of the things that I loved in the last class I sat in, I missed today's class, and I'm sorry to the teacher for missing it, but last week I got to sit on Dave's class, and Dave emphasized that revelation is all about grace. It's not fear. As, a, as I thought as a kid, do you know how revelation once begins? It talks about revealing Jesus Christ. To future generations. It's about grace. And we see that here. Salvation belongs to our God. That's what it means. Who sits on the throne. That's talking about God's authority. That God is ultimately the king of all kings. The creator of the entire universe. And then it also talks about God also being the lamb. Through Jesus Christ. Giving up his own life. So that you and I can live, can live. To put this message together and to end it with this last thought and story, 
It's one that I may have shared already here. I've come to the point in my life where I realized I share a lot of stories and I can't remember what I share these days. <laughs> and Denise is laughing. It gets worse, right? <laughs> my dad used to be like that. My dad used to share the same stories from when he was growing up to when he was a young adult. And I'm like, Dad, we've he- heard that sh- story a million times. But this story still resonates with me because it was a big lesson that I learned in my own personal life. Many of you knew, know, many of you know that I was detained by immigration for five weeks. And the first night that I was brought to the dormitory, I was afraid. Because being detained by immigration meant I was with other characters who were also questionable. The judge thought my character was questionable. That's why I was in that situation. There were others who were in my similar situation where we had done a crime way back then, but we had to be processed through again just to make sure we were good to be brought back into the country. Side note, I had just come from Honduras on a mission trip. And so I was going through immigration, and then they realized my criminal record from a long time ago, they had to detain me. So that first night, I was afraid because I was with all these other characters. Some of them were in my situation, while others were real-time, like at that moment, real-time criminals who were getting deported back to their homeland because they had done some heinous crime here. And so I was afraid. I was thinking, what's going to happen to me? And so um, when I was going through processing, the guard told me to, to put all of my belongings in a big bag, a burlap bag. And I said, I would like to know if I can bring my Bible with me, though. This, real, this Bible here, this very Bible here. And she said, I'll, I'll, ask, I'll ask the main guard if we can do that for you. Because we, we also believe in re- rehabilitation, is what she said. So then word came back, and, and it was that I can bring my Bible with me. I was like, oh, praise Jesus. God is with me. So I take this with me. This is the only thing I have. And I'm dressed in blue, in, in blue uh, scrubs, uh, to indicate, to indicate uh, myself as a detainee. They have different levels, by the way. Blue is the lo- lowest threat. Orange is next level threat. The red was um, greatest threat. And then green needs to be on their own, like individually, locked up, solitaire. Okay, because they're truly the greatest threat. So I was a blue scrub placed into this dormitory, taken in there. The dormitory looked like a huge gymnasium where you could fit like four basketball courts, just to give you perspective. And we had 22 bunks, which means there were 44 beds. I was 17T, which meant 17 top. That was my bed. I was 17 top. And so that means I had a roommate who slept underneath. That first night, remember, I was scared. I turned, the lights were turned off, except for just a few little lights turned on so we could walk if we had to go to the restroom, we can see where we're going. That was enough light for me to open my Bible and read. 
And that was okay. They're okay with me staying awake. They said, you don't even need to sleep, but stay quiet. If we hear you, then there's going to be trouble. So I stayed quiet. I turned, uh, turned around on my bed to, to sit uh, or, to, or to lay on my stomach, opened my Bible to pray, to read and pray. As I was reading and praying, I saw the bunkmate, or not my bunkmate, I saw someone else, just from me to this chair here, get up. And he comes to me, all tatted up. And I'm scared. I'm like, oh man, he, he's about to welcome the newbie inside this dormitory. I'm the newbie. I'm scared. I'm like, oh, okay, what, what's going to happen? Do I fight or do I beg for my life? Do I scream and yell? I'm thinking the worst is about to happen, right? He comes to me and he was like, what's up? He's like, what's up? I said, what's, what are you reading? I said, the Bible. Are you reading the Bible? Do you understand it? It's like, sometimes I do, and other times I need to study more or ask questions and get help from other people. And then I saw his demeanor change. He seemed more welcoming. He seemed more calm. And he said, I'm Edgar. Or not Edgar, I'm Vidal. I said, I'm Ed. And he said, I'd like to know what the Bible says. I was like, and why would you like to know that? He said, because I need comfort in this place. I've been here for three weeks, and I'm, and I'm scared. I was like, yeah, that's why I'm reading it right now, too. And he said, well, I know we can't read right now because it will get in trouble. How about we do a Bible study tomorrow? Tomorrow morning. I said, I would love that. And so by this point, I'm calm, you know. I judged the man. I did all tatted up and everything. The following morning, Vidal and I meet at his bunk. We only had a few places to meet at, either our bunks or at the um, main uh, rec area where we have our TVs, the microwaves, and games and stuff, but it's loud there, so we stayed at our bunks. And we sat in there, and I opened my Bible, and Vidal came, and he also brought a friend. He said, this is Edgar. Edgar uh, was Spanish-speaking, didn't speak much English. Vidal spoke a little, enough, for, for he and I to understand each other. And Vidal said, uh, Vidal said, I'd like to bring my friend Edgar because Ed- Edgar needs comfort too. I was like, okay. Then I didn't know what to read, so I asked them, what's on your heart? So I know where to turn to. I don't know what to turn to right now. And so Vidal told that to Edgar, and Edgar spoke up in Spanish and said, uh, Vidal was translating, he said, uh, Edgar wants to know if he has a place in heaven. That's it. He didn't care for anything else. He didn't care for the 28 fundamental doctrine Bible study that we give as Adventists, right? All he wanted to know was, does he have a place in heaven? And while he was saying that, my heart and mind, I, I have to say it was the Holy Spirit leading that, that morning. My heart and mind went to Matthew chapter 5, and you can turn with me there. Mark chapter 5, verse, verse 3. This is what I read. And I think it's important for us as Adventists to understand this because we feel like we have to go through certain steps until God accepts us. But look at what five, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3 says. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Can I get a volunteer to read it? Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. 
Denise, can I have you read it? Wow. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We read this passage that morning. It's that simple. It's that simple. Salvation is that simple. Salvation means that when you realize you need God in your life, like what this text says, blessed are the poor in spirit. When you realize God, you need God in your life, what's the promise? What is the promise? For theirs is the... That's right there in the Bible. I'm not making it up. Because I bet, I'm wondering, maybe there's an Adventist somewhere. If they were to hear this, they're going to debate it. They're going to fight it. But this is it. From the words and mouth of Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That changed my life around that experience that I had with Vidal and with, with Edgar. Moving forward, a total of five weeks I was detained. But Edgar, Vidal, and I only had three more weeks together because they were taken to their respective places. I can't remember if they were deported or if they were brought back into the country. <clears throat> Nonetheless, we, in those three weeks that we were together, our Bible studies, we had it every morning and at night. And what started out as three guys eventually, eventually became 18 to 20 people each time. 18 people. Not by what Vidal did or I did or Edgar did. This was the Spirit of God that did this. And it touched my soul so much that to this day, I will share this story until, until my dying day. <coughs> How does this connect to this story? Because as we grew to 18 to 20 people, people having Bible studies, I looked around. We were all different. There was people from Mexico, someone from Philippines, England, Africa. It was different multitudes of people Coming together out of necessity. Necessity of what? Necessity of, of love. Necessity of, of companionship. Necessity of hope. We came together for that. And that hope we found from this. From the Bible. Now, you have a choice to make. You can be part of that hope or you can be one that causes more division within the diversity. My appeal to you, though, is to think of your culture, to think of how you have been impacted in such a wonderful way by God's story that you, in turn, would love to reach out to people the same way that you've been reached out to sometime in your life by God. That's what it means to praise God as a multitude. We need to see the commonality in that. And the commonality is that salvation belongs to our God. He sits on that throne. He is the Lamb. 
And if we can come to that as being our common denominator, do you know what a rem- remember what a common denominator is? It's in math. How many times does two go into four, six, eight, or ten, or twelve, or so forth? Well, two goes into four two times. Two goes into eight four times. Two goes into twelve how many times? Six times. So that two is a common denominator. Someone here might be the two. Someone here might be the eight. Someone here might be the twelve. But the common denominator between every single one of us is Jesus. And if he is that common denominator, then you and I, you and I can come together and experience this. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb, they were wearing white robes. You were wearing white robes, and you were holding palm branches in your hands, and you cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 